Thanks for joining us. Um, week two of the uh, of the Coaches Club Zoom. Uh, obviously, last week we had rookie head coach Jade Ryan on. Uh, this week, uh, non-rookie head coach Andrew Fridge Petrie. Um, I don't think I give, need to give you too big of an introduction because you're pretty well known in the hockey circles. But the one thing that everyone's probably thinking is where fill us in on where the name Fridge or the nickname Fridge came from. Oh, um, so uh, my hockey journey began at Dandenong Ice Rink in, uh, in Victoria, southeast suburb of Melbourne. And uh, we were having a, our midget team used to practice before the, um, like the Super League team would come on the ice and the guys, the guys would stand around taping their sticks. And apparently a couple of the imports at the time uh, likened me to, uh, I can't remember, I think it's William Perry, you know, the, the linebacker for the Chicago NFL team. Okay, I don't, but linebacker, yeah. I, I can picture the bill. Yeah, so apparently he was a short, very wide human who could cover a short distance very quickly. Um, and and the, the guy said, uh, you know, that guy out there looks like a little refrigerator with all those little kids. And I've been pretty much the same height since about 13 years of age, you know, 6'3". And, uh, yeah, so they, I, it, it stuck. You know, I, I called my mum in the middle of nowhere and the little old Scottish lady says, hi, Fridge, when she answers the phone. So, it's um, yeah, it's been with me ever since. Nice. Well, yeah, I guess that's a compliment. Um, yeah, you can definitely get moving. I remember when you'd jump into some drills at practice and I'd be put, everyone's putting them into your feet because at first it doesn't look like you've moved very quickly and all of a sudden you've taken off. So you definitely get going. I think that's more attributable to the fact that none of you guys can pass very well. So, but, but you know, well, you know I'll, I'll have my story, you have yours, right? <laughs> All right, mate. Well, again, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, oh, thanks just for having me. Talk about uh, your time, mainly in the AIHL, uh, in particular your first taste of being a head coach in the AIHL in 2014. Um, kind of when you were thrown into the fire, you took over. It was about halfway through the year. Is that right? I think it was. It was about six or seven games in. I think they were one and six when I came in. Okay. So can you just kind of talk us through that, how that came to be? And on your end, was it in the works for a while? And how much time did you have to prepare getting thrown in the deep end like that? Yeah, um, well, thanks for having me, Dave. I love the initiative. It's, this is a good, uh, uh, great uh, initiative. But yeah, that was, um, no, it, it, it came up very quickly and very suddenly. I've been out of the AIHL loop for, oh, about eight years, I think, since I'd last played uh, and hadn't really even been to an AIHL game, I don't think. Um, and, uh, you know, the opportunity came up and it was with a club that I'd played for for a very long time here in Sydney. And some people reached out, wondered if I was interested. Uh, and just being asked the question kind of, it triggered a bit of a, I guess, an itch that needed to be scratched, you know. So, um, yeah, having been out of the, the ecosystem for a while, I was a little bit nervous, I guess. And, you know, the, the players like Simon Barge and John Clulo on that team, are the professional hockey players of you know, reasonably high calibre. I think to this day, Barge is one of the best I've seen in the league. 
Um, but uh, yeah, look, it came together very quickly. I had a few conversations with the Wilsons and then I spoke to the, uh, the GM at the time. Uh, he offered me the position. I said yes. And, and 48 hours later, I was being introduced and, and running my first practice. So I guess from, from your, obviously your playing time in the AIHL, um, but not having too much time to think about that, is it something that you think you've always been preparing for? Um, did you feel that you'd always wanted to coach? And I know you had a bit of coaching, previous coaching experience, or in those kind of 48 hours where you're really thinking, kind of, shit, how am I going to put this together? Um, yeah, I've done quite a bit of coaching previously, and I've always felt comfortable in, in uh, coaching leadership-type roles. So the nervousness really was about whether what I was going to deliver was going to be up to scratch. You know, I didn't know that until I had a crack had a, you know, gone out and had a crack at it, run some practices and, and, and spoken to some senior guys on that team. But um, yeah, I guess I was, uh, I, I didn't realize how much I wanted to do it until the opportunity became real. And then it just felt like an, a fantastic opportunity to reconnect with a game that I'd loved my whole life at a high level. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And was there many players on that team that you had played with at the time? Uh, there was some that I, I mean, Bert Malloy was on the team as the captain of the team. Uh, I played with him in the, I don't know what the tournament's called, but the one that they play out of Erina, you know, the US versus Canada kind of. National Cup, I think, yeah. Yeah, there was a, you know, they've been running that for a few years. I played with Bert uh, in a couple of those, I think, consecutive years. Um, I'd, I'd played some East Coast Super League and coached the Central Coast teams. So I knew, I knew uh, Shane Southwood. Um, I'd played with Chris Secura and. Uh, Dave Dunwoody. Um, so I had some connections from a playing perspective, but I don't think there was any, anyone on the team other than maybe Shane Southwood that I'd ever coached before. Do you think that was uh, helped you or, or hurt you as far as did they, those guys would probably all remember you as a player or was it new to a lot of them? I don't know whether it hurt or helped at all, to be honest, because I, I wasn't in the locker room. I don't, I don't know what was discussed, but, um, you know, I played the game a certain way and I'm, I'm sure that you know, that players who didn't know me would have asked the players who did know me, what's this guy all about? It's a natural thing for people to do, right? Um, but um, look, I, have a lot, I give that group a lot of credit because there was a lot of turmoil when I came in, you know, that the incumbent coach had been dismissed summarily after winning a championship the year before. So, you know, this was a successful team um, in, in real turmoil. Um, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but there were people at the leadership at the helm of that club who were, it's not an overstatement to say, loggerheads really with the playing group. Um, and there was a, a, some real turmoil there. So obviously that first week or two was a little bit ginger and we had some one-on-one -on -one honest conversations with the, the guys who made up, you know, the leadership group. And, um, uh, but, it, you know, I give that group a ton of credit because they came together very, very quickly, uh, turned their season around very quickly and, and ended up making the playoffs after a fairly terrible start. Um, so, that, you know, the character in the locker room um, was there for all to see. Well, you touched on leadership, and I, I want—I'll go back there a little later on because I, I definitely want to kind of quiz you on that a little bit. But uh, you know, in 2014, essentially, you, you enter a team um, as a coach that's that's new to you. They haven't been coached by you before. Again, yep. in 2015, you you move clubs to the North Stars, brand new team for the second time, uh, and then you go back to the Ice Dogs in 2018. Um, essentially to start again. So, so three times you've started with a new group. 
you know, talking culture and practice habits, what are some things that you find as a coach after doing it three times now that are really important to implement early on? Um, like I said, in regards to culture, practice habits, things like that. Well, that's, that's an awesome question, Dave. Um, look, I think ultimately the playing group has to see that you're serious about what you're doing as a coach. Um, so, I mean, for me, I, I just try and make it clear that I'm passionate about this and I'm taking it very seriously. Um, I hope that uh, players can see when I turn up to practices that I'm well prepared, uh, that we're doing something that has some purpose. Um, and then, you know, you quickly got to remind guys that it's a game and it's meant to be fun. Otherwise, what are we doing? But at the same time, at the highest level, we're all coming together trying to achieve something, right? We're trying to win a good old cup. So it is fun, but it's also the most serious hockey you can play in Australia. So there's that element of, um, you know, semi-professionalism for want of a, a better phrase. Um, but look, I, I think a two-way street of honesty and accountability is, is absolutely crucial. Um, you know, the, the locker room has to be a safe place. Every player on the team from the youngest kid to the oldest veteran has to feel comfortable that in, in that environment that they can speak their mind, that they'll be listened to, that there's a, a forum for them to express themselves uh, and that there'll be some discussion and then resolution and we can all move on. So I think honesty and accountability in both directions and you can't put yourself above that as a coach. You, you have to kind of make yourself almost the poster boy for it. So you, you, you can't, it's difficult to hold a group of people to a set of standards that they've agreed to if, if you're not towing that same line. So, uh, you know, honesty, accountability, two-way street, and let them see that, you, that you're taking it seriously and you're being passionate about what you're doing. Yeah, I love that. I love that, particularly the, it being a safe place. You know, it's, a, it's an adult's league, but there's obviously a lot of young players in the game or, or players that are new to that level mixing with professional players and yeah and i think that's super important like you said that it's a it's a safe environment where they can be themselves and and be a little bit vulnerable because that's the only way you get better but in being honest do you find they're often hard conversations to have as a, as a oh yeah first time coach yeah um i've had some incredibly difficult conversations and i you know i i really i care about players I, very much, uh, you know, what their aspirations are, what they're trying to achieve, what's happening away from the rink, um, you know, and I've had to, I've ended a couple of careers. I've had to pull guys in the rooms who have been stalwarts of the league for a long time and tell them that it's the end of the road, you know, that I don't take that lightly at all. And it, it's, um, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. But if someone brings you in to, to, to achieve a goal and an outcome, you have to be honest with yourself, like I just touched on. And um, I think one of the crucial things that I always try and instill is there's one set of rules. I, I, um, yeah, I'll take this to the grave. You know, I don't think you can have three or four cliques in a room and treat them all differently because that's not honest. <laughs> and, and you've got three or four different sets of accountability. So you've just blown that base of honesty and trust, right? Um, yeah, look, it's a, it's hard to cover all of this stuff in a, in a 45 minute zoom, but. Yeah, it is. It is. But you, you allude to some great stuff there. And I think it kind of answers my next question. That is, you know, you know, what is the culture of a fridge coach team? Um, I think you hit a lot of it there with oh. the honesty and accountability, <laughs> but can you add to that? Yeah, look, honestly, that, that's another great question. And culture's a funny thing. You know, in business, it gets, it's a term that's tossed around a lot in sports as well. Uh, first of all, I'm not exactly sure how to define culture. I think what people mean is how 
how generally a group of people behaves and conducts itself. Right? I think that's the simplest term, but I don't think culture is, is something that is um, delivered top down. Um, culture comes from the group. It's, it's an organic thing and it comes, it's driven by and shaped by the, the biggest personalities in the group. Um, not necessarily, not necessarily your leaders, but the biggest personalities that, uh, the ones that are the loudest and, and that sort of are the Pied Pipers behaviorally for everyone else. Um, but uh, what I probably try and do is, is connect with those people, those, those two to five or six uh, people on the team who are those big personalities and try and maybe mentor them a little bit. Um, maybe just ask them some questions that, that makes them see themselves in a slightly different light and potentially take a more mature approach to whatever they're doing, if they're being immature to start with. And that hasn't always been the case. Um, I've been blessed actually with some leadership groups in, in my six or seven years of coaching. Um, some phenomenal leaders who didn't need any help from me at all and who taught me things. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, there's been some loose cannons that, that have, uh, you know, potentially or had the potential to lead guys astray, for want of a better term. And I, I take a lot of pride in trying to connect with those, with those people and maybe or those players and maybe just help them see a different approach that they hadn't maybe considered before that no one had, had suggested before. But yeah, culture is driven from within the group. It's not a top-down thing. I don't think coaches and managers uh, control that. And if they think they do, I think they're kidding themselves a bit. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. It's, I agree. It is a tough thing to, to describe because to me, if I think on teams that I've been where there's been a really positive culture, um, it's also hard to explain and it's almost a feeling versus a set of rules or words. That's a good um, point. Yeah. And everyone yeah, feels that. Every, that. Yeah. Sorry? Everyone in the locker room feels it. You can't bullshit them. There's no, yeah. you know, if you try and do that, you've lost the group. That's, yeah. It comes back to that honesty and accountability. If I, if I walk into a room and bullshit them, every single guy in that room knows straight away. And that's a recipe for disaster. You've lost the group, I think. Totally, totally. And it's like a job, right? You, if it's a good job with a good culture, it almost doesn't matter as much what you're getting paid. You just want to be there. And I feel if it's a good yeah. culture, players want to be there, not because they have to be, because where else would they rather be? They want to be around that culture. That's exactly so, it. Well, you know, you, you want guys getting off the couch after a long, hard day at work, at, you know, when they'd rather be going to bed and coming to practice with a bit of enthusiasm and, and good spirits. Yeah. And that's what makes the AIHL very unique because it's not a professional league um, mm. and it's not an amateur league at the level where it's casual, just come when you want. Um, there, there's a lot expected out of players, but the, the financial rewards aren't there. Um, in fact, most guys, it costs them money, not as far as forking out money to play, but it costs them money to keep their bodies healthy. You know, they're athletes, right? So it costs yeah. them time away from their family. Um, it, it's tricky. I think AIHL coaches, um, have it harder than a lot of other coaches around the world. Uh, look, I agree with that 100%. And, and, and you and I both speak to uh, international coaches regularly. And, and sometimes I go to them with something that's really challenging and ask for their advice. And because they've got 22 guys on a roster and another 5,000 people vying for those spots, they have a very different view to what they'll tolerate, how long they'll tolerate it for, how many chances guys get, uh, all that sort of stuff. But um, I, look, back to the culture thing a little bit, I think, you can help that top down if you just put in place some boundaries, um, uh, maybe a set of rules that are understood by everybody, and, and you make sure that you hold 
you know, your, your top goal scorer or your, your fourth line left winger who's just trying to get some ice time. You hold everyone accountable to the same set of rules. I think that that wins your respect and maybe influences culture as opposed to driving it. Look, look uh, while we're on leadership, uh, captains. You know, you, you've had some great captains in your time, both as a player and as a coach. As a coach, do you pick your captains? Does the team pick the captains or do the captains pick themselves? Uh, all three scenarios could happen, I guess, for different coaches. Not for me. I, I, don't, I don't pick the coaches. I think, again, it's... The group needs to lead itself. It needs to, you, you can't appoint someone who's not respected. And if you come into a new environment, you don't know who's got the players' respect within the players' group from, a, from the position that, um, that they'll be followed as a leader, that they'll be listened to, that their example will be something that guys aspire to, right? So, um, so I prefer the group to elect its leaders, almost obvious. And it, it's usually fairly obvious who these guys are, right? Um, I think as a coach, if you... If you need to, and I don't want to dump on coaches who do this, but from my, from my own perspective, I think if you, as a coach, if you feel a need to appoint a captain, I think you're probably looking for, to navigate an easier experience for yourself. So I, I want my captains and my leadership group to hold me accountable as well. I want them to come to me and deliver information that they maybe think I don't want to hear, but I want them to know they can do that. Um, yeah, I, look... I think ultimately coaches are accountable to the players more than the players are to the coach. Um, and that sounds a bit pithy when I say it out loud, but I believe that. You know, as a coach, you've got a great responsibility to this group of guys who are sacrificing their time, their money, their health in some yeah, their relationships sometimes. Um, so, yeah, you, I think you're more accountable to that group of players than, than any one player in that group is to you. Yeah, interesting. And, I, you know, it really resonates with me when you say that sometimes it's easier to pick a captain and it's because it almost makes it easier for yourself. And, and I've felt that on certain teams where it's like, you know, I'd like that guy to be the captain. I think he's listened to enough, but I have a great connection with him. I'm going to be able to influence his decisions. And, and I felt that as a coach uh, and I, yeah, I don't think that's right. Um, after going through it, I think, like you said, the captain has to be really organic from the group um, yeah. because that's going to get the most out of the group. And then as a coach, that's what you're working with. And it may not be comfortable for you to have those conversations, but at least you're getting the real reaction from the group and not a manufactured one by someone you've picked because you like. Yeah, and that getting the real reaction, having that honesty is absolutely crucial. Again, I sound like a broken record, but I can't think of a single scenario in this environment where that isn't the truth. Uh, and if that means a tough conversation every week or every fortnight or once a month or twice a season or whatever it is, then... It needs to be able to, you have to provide an environment in which that can happen. Nice. So, you know, it doesn't have to be limited to AIHL teams, but have you ever worked on a team or with a team that didn't have a standout leader? Uh, and can teams be successful without them? Oh, good question. Um, I have to think about that one a bit. It's a tough one. I know as a player, you know, thinking back, uh, to all the teams I've ever played on, even in minor hockey. And I've been fortunate to play with some really good leaders. But I think back to other teams where I think, and sometimes I've been wearing a letter on them, where I really think, oh, we don't really have a standout leader. Uh, and some of those teams have been unsuccessful. And some of them, you know, I've never won a championship like that. But 
I've been on some teams where I'd consider it a success. So I'm curious, and I know as a coach as well, sometimes, you know, you, you scan the room and you're just like, mm. I'm seeing a lot of good people here, but I'm not seeing, it's not obvious, you know, who the captain is. And that makes me yeah. tough. I think you made a couple of good points. Um, I, I don't... It, you said success, and the question, I, I, if I recall correctly, is can a team be successful without a standout leader? My gut response is no, because the leader or a standout leader is someone who can lift spirits and kick butts when the group's flat and, and can calm the group down and, you know, when the emotions are running high. And, you can't do that. You can to an extent as a coach, but you can't be doing it night in and night out because your voice starts, it's monotonous. And at a certain point in time, you're not as effective with what you have to say. So I'd really rather that emotional IQ be managed from within the group. And I, I think under that structure, you have to have a standout leader. I have played on a few teams where the captain wasn't the right guy for the team. And if I'm completely honest, I was that guy a couple of times. Like I, I was given captaincy responsibility way too early in, in my uh, playing career, for want of a better word, but when I, as a player. Um, it took me a long time to come to terms with what being a captain meant and what was important. And, um, yeah, so I guess from a personal experience standpoint, I've, I've been that guy. I've been the wrong guy uh, with the C on. And the teams weren't successful probably. Maybe not that's the only reason, but I'd say it contributed. Yeah. Did that answer the question? I kind of ran around a bit there. No, I think you did. I think, um, you know, every, that's the thing with hockey. Every year, the goalposts are different. Every year, the teams are different. So there's no real hard and fast answer similar to culture. But yeah. it's an interesting one because I know, like similar to you, I remember I was playing on a team years ago where I was, uh, I was the captain and it was for a tournament and I felt I played my worst hockey and it just wasn't me. Um, Yet I played on other teams where I wore an A or, or I didn't wear anything at all where I felt I've done a great job leading. And I only say that in my experience because I think everyone's probably had that feeling. And sometimes there's players who are great leaders but not captains um, because they're not gonna, you're not going to get the best out of them and it's almost too much pressure for them. But I just yeah. know as a coach too, it's important to understand that um, – Sometimes you might scan your room and not have a captain. I know there's NHL teams like Toronto the last few years until Tavares took it that didn't have a C. Um, and I think that's okay. If, if, if there's no one there screaming out for it, have a bunch of assistant captains. Do it by committee. It might not be ideal, but it's a way to go versus saying, well, someone has to wear it. You know, it's going to be you. Yeah, and that's, I don't agree with that at all. The C, it's coveted. Uh, and it should be. It's a, it's a an honour. And I, look, there's a, there's a few things around captaincy that that I've got strong opinions about. You, your captain can't be someone who doesn't get a regular shift. I, I, your captain has to be in the trenches, right? Yeah. Um, I don't mean physically battling everybody, but he's got to be involved. He's got to be a, a regular shift getter. He's got to be he's one of your. In the game. Yeah, it, I, I don't agree with slapping the C on necessarily the the best player on a team. I, I'm not a fan of that unless it's, he's the obvious leader. But, you know, you touched on another good point, and I've seen it happen before, where captaincy and leadership that's bestowed on people cripples them, cripples their game. It cripples them personally. It deeply impacts their performance negatively. I've seen that happen quite a few times. And, and there are other characters, if you give them a little bit of extra responsibility, it can smarten them up. If they've had a, a period of poor discipline, you put an A on a guy who's got poor discipline, 
when sometimes that's the only conversation you have to have. You know, he might respond to that well and realize, oh, you know, this is a leadership role now. I can't be doing that dumb shit behind the play and, you know, taking cheap penalties. So it's, it's a really interesting question I hadn't considered before. And I'll give it some thought afterwards too. Nice, nice. Um, look, you've spent some time uh, abroad, uh, both playing, but um, most more recently, traveling, uh, kind of extending your network with other coaches and some really elite level coaches. Um, what are some yeah. of the things, well, one, if you can expand on kind of who you've spent some time with, and two, what are some of the things that uh, you've picked up from those guys that you've been able to apply to your teams? And, and continue to pick up. You know, look, it, after that experience in 2014, I realized I loved coaching. You know, I, I really, to this day, I still enjoy it. Um, it, it's fantastic. And I think if you love something and you, and you want to be your best at it, you, you've got to be on a constant journey of learning. You can't assume that you have all the answers, especially not as a Australian born and raised guy in a, a sport that's alien to the country, really. So, I mean, I, I did what I always do in business and in life, and I, I tried to reach out to some mentors. So I, I think I spent, sent like 15 uh, emails to a, a group of like a, a geographic cluster of schools in, in northeastern North America around the sort of uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, Maine area. And I got, you know, really solid responses from four or five of them and, and just booked a, a, a two-week period to go and visit them. So I spent um, two or three days with, with uh, first with Bowdoin College, which is a NCAA Div 3 program, but a, a very highly regarded one. Uh, Robert Stark played there for four years. Um, and uh, a good friend of mine, Jimmy Clapman, who, who put me up while I was in Boston, uh, played at that school as well. Uh, then I went to uh, uh, Merrimack in Andover in Massachusetts, which is a Div 1 program. Um, met uh, Coach Mark Dennehy there, who, who's now coaching the Binghamton Senators in the AHL, and I'm still in pretty regular contact with. I uh, went to UConn after that, University of Connecticut. Um, Coach Kavanaugh there. And then I went down to um, Quinnipiac. Um, and actually stayed with Burt Malloy's parents as they live uh, in very close proximity to that university and, and go regularly to, uh, to support the team. But look, uh, I, we don't have enough time to list all the things I, that I learned from that group of people and, and continue to learn from that group of people and some others that I've met. Um, Coach, uh, um, Coach Dennehy hosts uh, a coaching Zoom call. It's unfortunately at three o'clock in the morning for me. Um, but it's got 50 to 70 uh, very highly ranked coaches all sharing their ideas and philosophies about how they run their programs and what's important in, in player management and, you know, every aspect of the game that you can consider. And every three or four minutes, you know, I'm writing frantically. I'm <laughs> taking notes. I've got RSI by the end of these meetings. But it's a privilege to, to have made connections with those sorts of people and to be, to be invited to uh, participate in, in, in things like that. Excuse me. Yeah, that's that's awesome. It's a it's a great network, and I find, what I find with coaches is now not everyone, but like you said, it, <laughs> success is such a moving target. Yeah, uh, a lot of coaches don't want to talk to anyone and don't want to really share, but other coaches, uh, particularly high level coaches, are really hungry to share and not only share but but hear and learn as well. Um, yeah. And that's a really good point, Dave. Not, not to jump on you, but I'll forget um, yep. what you said. It's, that, that's an incredibly good point. And I learned that. That was one of the, one of the uh, big penny drop moments for me. I, I was accumulating all this information over here and kind of keeping it. You know, I'm, I, this is my advantage. I know stuff no one else knows. And, you know, I, I, I coached Denny here at Merrimack. We, I 
10 minutes I, since I shook his hand, he's just saying, now what, what can I do to help? And I'll give you everything I can. And I, and I, I was a bit taken aback by how free he was with sharing all of this really, what I deem then and now important, uh, high value stuff. And I said that to him in, in not so many words. And he said, oh, Fridge, I didn't invent the game. And I had a massive penny drop. Here's a guy, you know, we don't have to talk about how much money. NCAA coaches make, make a lot of money. He's on big money. Not only has he made time in, you know, at the three-quarter way mark of, a, of a, a, a tricky season for him, for me, but he's sharing all of this knowledge with me in, in a way that was flippant almost, you know, taking no responsibility for having invented the game or, or, or any secrecy or protection at all. So um, when I got back from that trip, I, I made you know, a promise to myself and I've lived up to it to share anything and everything that anyone asks for. Um, and I think that's the way especially for a, uh, you know, a fledgling sport in this country. That's, that's how um, any coach in Australia can call me about anything. And if I've got time, the resources and the answer, obviously no one has all the answers, but I'll help in any way I can. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's good of you. And, and it's also excellent of him to, to be that open. And, and I know I've had that similar connection with coaches overseas that um, it's almost like, you know, doing a course in university sometimes when they can throw you a bunch of video or, or tactics or yeah. even just conversations around culture where it's just so, so valuable. But what I found with um, high, higher level coaches particularly is they want to know a lot as well. And initially yeah. when I'd have those conversations, I'd almost downplay like, well, it's, you know, it's Australia. It's not, it's not close to what you're doing here. But the more and more I have those conversations, the more they're eager to to be interested and they've really taught me that it's the same. It's really the same, the same challenges. Um, and often they'll be having problems where it's like, Oh, we, we've, we've overcome that here as well. Um, that really like, like uh, he said there, you know, no one's invented the game. Th these are all challenges that a coach has had before, whether it's at a high level or a minor hockey level. Um, yeah. There's something to be learned from everyone. And, and I think the, uh, I think it's really become a, a mark of a good coach is how open and, and willing they are to share and to learn from whoever they're sharing with as well. Yeah, that, that all great points. And I agree with you 100% on that. And it, it's really refreshing and eye-opening um, uh, that coaches at that level are so forthcoming. And uh, you, you said, I felt exactly what you just touched on. You, you're almost embarrassed that they, that they really want to know, you know, they're asking you questions and they want a real answer. And you, and you get that kind of, well, I'm just this dude from Australia kind of feeling and you're, you know, you're you and you're doing it, you're doing it at this level and that's my perception and, and I'm doing it at this level. And, but yeah, the, uh, the Yukon coach was a very cerebral guy. Um, you know, he, when I left him, he'd recommended four or five books for me to read. None of them were hockey books. They were all about, you know, leadership and, and, and uh, tactics and, um, you know, a couple of other things about uh, uh, endurance and an autobiography about a military guy who'd, who'd endured incredible difficulty and come out of it a certain way and was now mentoring young men. And um, yeah, so it, it was just incredible in that condensed period of time to get four, 50% similar, but then 50% very unique uh, takes on trying to achieve the same thing, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and, and I'm going to jam, I've got some other questions, but I'm going to jam it in here while we're there, because I think, it's kind of reminded me that these coaches, every time I've spoken to them, and I know I get a lot of recommendations from, from yourself, 
and other coaches here in Australia is that um, successful coaches are, are reading and listening all the time. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to ask you your recommendations, but one I had recommended to me and I've, I've crushed it in the last kind of two weeks is a podcast called uh, Flying Coach with Steve Kerr, the um, Golden State NBA coach, and uh, Pete Carroll, the Seahawks, I believe, coach, are doing it together. So for people listening that want a great podcast on coaching, they're quick hitters, about 40 minutes each, but Flying Coach is a good one. Is there any books or podcasts that uh, you have on your table right now that you can recommend to anyone? Um, I, I, podcasts are my tonic for commuting, so I try and keep them light. You know, I listen to Spitting Chicklets and Hockey Central, and uh, when I can be, uh, uh, when I can fit it in, I'll, I'll catch an Elliot Friedman uh, news sort of podcast. There, I forget what it was Thirty One Thoughts, I think he calls it. Yep. Uh, but I, for podcasting, I, I, I look for light stuff. I, you know, I, I commute ninety minutes each way to work, so I really need a form of escape almost. But I read. Um, every book on leadership that I can get my hands on. I think as a subject, as a core subject, um, it's incredibly valuable because all of us in every situation in our lives are either leading or being led. And understanding how to be your best self in both of those roles and both of those scenarios, I think is crucial. Um, you know, I'm ripe old age of 51. I, I, that might be the only pearl of wisdom I have for people, but... Uh, you know, every every conversation and interaction that you have is a negotiation and you're either, you know, you're either equal with that person or you're leading or being led and understanding how to react in each of those scenarios for the best benefit of uh, of your own outcome, but also for, for the, uh, you know, the outcome of both parties. I think it's incredibly important. So they're the only books I really recommend is, you know, human growth in terms of leadership. Yeah. Okay. That's good stuff. Uh, look, I want to dive into a little bit of, team tactics um and yeah, you've i'm, not, I'm lot not an x's and o's guy dave you know that <laughs> <laughs> well dive in as deep as you want then uh or as shallow as you want but um i guess with the teams you've coached and the teams you've had success with if you, if you had to name one what's one of the most important team tactics that you've met, that you've implemented in your time as a as a coach that's led to success oh wow um, 2016 North Stars. Uh, we, you know, the 2015 team, when I first came up there, there was a lot of enthusiasm and, and, and there, were, it, there was a lot of reception for a new voice and new ideas. And, and I was jumping, you know, I was really enthusiastic and that, that would have been obvious to everyone and everyone got on board quickly, but that team uh, was a juggernaut really. So as a coach, I recognized quickly that, put some simple structures in place and then be careful not to get in the way too often. That, you know, that was the way to run that team. You know, we had the Luke Moffat, Geordie Wadrick's first year here. We had Jan Safar, we had Scott Swiston. We still had uh, JFK. We still had Starkey. We, you know, we had Burt Malloy. Um, Matt Lindsay had a breakout year that year. We had a phenomenal team. Um, and then the next year, on paper at least, it, it looked like we were, you know, at 75% of the previous year. And, um, whilst we, we still had incredible players and incredible commitment, we didn't have that running. We weren't going to win games 7-6, you know, 7-5, which is what we'd done, what we did regularly the year before. Um, and that was the year I'd just come back from overseas, from, from visiting these four programs and, and had a whole lot of ideas about what would work and what wouldn't. And we put a defensive structure together that year that, um, that I believe 
definitely got us into the playoffs. And then just some faith and some confidence won us those two overtime games. Um, but yeah, we, we played a back three system that year where we, we had uh, a designated forward play in between the defensemen. Um, and it, you know, once the group bought in, uh, and there was a lot of resistance early on, um, <laughs> but I, I kept bashing my head up against the wall with it. And, and once everyone was bought in, it was incredibly effective. Dave, you played on that team. and I'm not asking you to pump my tires in any way, but you know, we won a lot of games because that system kept pucks out of the net. Um, you know, yeah, the year I, before. I, I do. And um, personally, I was a fan of it. Uh, a guy like me who doesn't uh, play a lot, it, it, it suited my game and, and allowed me to get more ice time, which, which um, I was thankful for. But uh, as far as it working, I agree. I, I agree it was a big part of our team getting into the playoffs. And then it was, uh, it's, there were certain times in the finals where we really leaned on it to win those games. Um, but the, the biggest kind of feeling I had from that system was the opening weekend that year in Perth, where we yeah. only had two imports with us, Swiston and McLaughlin, uh, Greenside and Harris were yet to arrive. So we were shorthanded, like obviously That's right. playing with yeah. two imports out of four. Uh, and the expectation um, from, from outside the locker room was if we can get a split, that would be wonderful. If we can get a point, that would probably be okay. Uh, yeah. The expectations are very low, and we ended up winning uh, once in regulation, once in a shootout, getting five of six points. And um, I talked to a number of the guys on the team regularly, and often when we're having some drinks, reminiscing on hockey, that was one of the most enjoyable hockey weekends, um, you know, of our lives. Just because of that, uh, it was everyone yeah. buying in, everyone influencing the game. Yeah. Um, and I really think that in, I know for sure in one of those games, uh, Dane Davis may not agree with me, but I, <laughs> if we could go back and watch it on film, I'd almost put some money down to say we kept them under three quality scoring chances. And I only say that to be safe because I actually think we kept them to zero quality scoring chances. Like yeah, grade A chances. Yeah, grade yeah. A chances were low for sure. Uh, and you're right. And we had, you know, the, the previous year, we had two NHL draft picks who were, who were studs and had lit up European leagues. Uh, and then we went to Perth with uh, Scotty Swiston who came back, who played um, in a second division league in, in Canadian University. And his teammate, uh, Connor McLaughlin, who, uh, who was very offended uh, with a couple of comments that, uh, that we weren't, you know, that we'd be lucky not to get embarrassed on this weekend. I remember uh, Connor and I have since had a few jokes about that. He, he didn't say anything. But uh, he, he put the team on his back offensively that weekend, if you recall. And I think he went on to score, was it 36 goals in that season? Like he, a phenomenal amount of goals. Um, and he, you know, he never even knocked on the door of an NHL, uh, uh, you know, contract. So yeah, and and he was he he could score, and he and he definitely yeah. put us on his back that weekend. But but in the shootout win, just to show how much of a team effort it was, Jason Chalker buried the winning goal on uh, yeah. on their import goalie. So um, yeah. it was a great weekend. Great weekend of hockey. And, and because of, of a lot of things and a lot of players stepping up, but um, I know for me and, and for a lot of the team, the feeling of we have a tactic here that works and that everyone needs to be a part of. And, and that was kind of uh, case in point that weekend. Yeah. And, and more importantly, Dave, I don't think anyone over here had seen it before. Um, and by the time they recognised what was happening, it was too late really to do anything about it uh, because it's a very difficult system when it's performed well to break down. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I, I remember the final series that weekend when we, you know, the end of that season, Hamish Powell, perennial third line winger, scores the uh, overtime goal against Perth. Um, admittedly, yeah, the people's goal. Admittedly, our import D, Brandon Greenside, went coast to coast and gave him a cherry feed right in front of the net. But, you know, previous to that, um, you know, and I'm not dumping on anyone here, but there was a, the league was really about your top two lines and you would chuck your third line out just to kill a few seconds here and there while, while your top two lines sucked some, some wind. And I hope you remember the journey we went on that year to, to kind of legitimise that third line as a contributing force on the team. And that year, I believe we did it, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great answer there for that team tactic. And I encourage any coach listening to, to reach out to yourself um, or NSA and, and kind of ask about any tactics and get that one in detail because um, it's, it's definitely effective. And I think at all levels, uh, particularly in Australia, because it, it's so hard to play against. And it's uh, something that will throw a lot of teams and a lot of coaches, coaches off. Um, with your Ice Dogs there, you have a Young Dogs program. Is that correct yeah so we it's called the pathways the AIHL pathways program every year we we nominate um well we don't it doesn't have to be five but up to five of the most uh suitable eligible talented you know the mix of all those ingredients you look for at that age and, and we bring them along on the uh, on the practice program um and uh last year a few of them got to dress on a young Connor Bolger um scored a goal on his second shift in his first AIHL game um you know, the moments as a coach, you know, Hamo's goal, uh, even your face after he scored, you were on the ice, right? When he got Hamo, that yeah, goal? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, just th- those are the moments, those moments of absolute joy uh, that come along with achieving something together. That's, that's what, it's like, you know, people talk about golf. You always hit that one shot every round that brings you back the next round. For me, it's that moment in a game where there's genuine joy, where someone's done something they've never done before, achieved something they didn't think they could achieve, either individually or collectively, right? Yeah. So with your young players, and, and uh, you guys are, through that program, you guys are a team, more than a lot of teams, that bring on a lot of young players and really get them involved. How, do you, how are you finding the young local players uh, take to being coached with team tactics? Are they, are they one, open to it? Are they able to, to do it or or you find it's a battle like what because some players will come up not being exposed to a lot of team tactics whereas other players will come up um, particularly yeah. if they've gone overseas with a, with a big exposure so what are you finding from your guys okay, first of all it's a really important question I think for the development of the sport in in Australia and I, it's an area I've always taken seriously I want to I want to in as much as it is possible I want to bring young players or, or fringe players for want of a better term along as much as possible, make them more a part of it, more, more involved. Um, th- that's kind of a kid by kid answer, Dave, to be honest. But some kids have great aptitude for systems and tactics, but have never been taught them. Other kids have been taught them through AJ programs or, or good coach, coaches at midget level, but have no aptitude for it. So it, it's a really, um, it's a case by case kind of answer. Um, I, I don't struggle with it because kids that come through the program, I sit down with them individually and let them know what's expected of them and what they can expect from the program. So they have to agree to that and sign that they agree to it, that these are the things that are expected from you. So they get three strikes on that and and no one's hit a third strike yet. So we haven't had to tell anyone they can't come back. Um, But in terms of things being difficult, you know, they need to listen and they need to give their best effort at all times. And 
part of listening is, is following instruction, right? And if they're not able to do that, then we'll give them some remedial one-on-one -on -one instructions to get them to where we need them to be. And if they aren't able to do that, um, maybe they've got a great attitude, so we'll keep them around for that. But if they've got a sort of a poor attitude about that as well, then we just let them know, or we will in the future let them know that they're uh, you know, not welcome in the program for now. You know, I'm, I don't like closing doors on people. I, I, you know, unless you do something really egregious, second chances are always there, you know? All right, well, I've got three uh, quick hitters to finish here. Uh, you know, I don't want to take up too much of anyone's time. And I think, I think there's been some real gems with some of your answers here tonight, Mike Fridge. And I thank you again for sharing. But the three quick Thanks, hitters, bro. first of all, uh, most memorable win as a coach? Overtime semi-final, Hamo's goal against Perth. I like it. Most embarrassing loss as a coach? Now, I have to preface this with embarrassing. <laughs> you don't even want to be throwing teams under the bus, but we all feel... Shitty after a loss, uh, what's your worst? Okay, two-part answer. Anytime we capitulate as a result of poor discipline, poor individual discipline, anytime a guy puts his own needs, wants, desires in front of the team's goals, that's not, I wouldn't call that embarrassing, but it's, that rubs me really the wrong way, you know? Um, the most embarrassing loss that pops to mind now, uh, there haven't been many, but um, yeah, going into, Canberra last year, scoring seven goals and losing by six. That was pretty embarrassing. Yeah, that would be a tough one. Yeah. Uh, and look, when, uh, when the season recommences, whether it be in a, in a short form this year or uh, hopefully in its full form in 2021, what can we expect from the Ice Dogs? Oh, the same as always. I mean, the Ice Dogs are a committed group. They've, they've, they've got each other's backs in every scenario and they work their asses off. Um, I know we're limited for time here, but I really felt for the group this year that, that I felt for everybody, for the whole league, but especially my guys, um, you know, led by Manko and, and a couple of other guys, they, they had put in such an effort over summer. They were working with a, a coach, an off-ice systems coach, who coaches Olympic athletes. They were, they were rocking up in the CBD uh, twice a week. Uh, they were tracking each other's weight loss and, and making a competition of it. When we finally got on the ice, they were so fit, I was worried. How am I going to sustain this level of fitness for, for six months, you know? So I really felt bad for them having put in such a huge effort off the ice and um, recognising themselves that that was what it was going to take, you know? With two years in a row, we were, we were a point or two or a game or two out of playoffs. So something had to change, right? Wow. Um, I have a question here. That's all I have, uh, but I do have some questions here. Just have to get to it. Bear with me. First of all, one that was emailed me through during the week. Dave, you're on mute. Yeah, I, I wrote the question in the chat. Um, I, do you mind if I ask that in the meantime, Dave? Yeah. No, go ahead, Dave. So I I, uh, I wrote. You're one of the few coaches in the AIHL that regularly play a one A one B goalie system and you've even played uh, third string goalies in the past. Um, I think that's pretty awesome being a goalie myself. And, uh, and do you see this being a trend following sooner rather than later by more AIHL coaches moving forward? God, I hope so, Gabe. <laughs> I hope so. Look, the, the answer is yes, if the talent is there. And I, I'd love to see as many young Aussie kids get as many chances at the highest level in this country as possible. But 
I'm, I'm a head coach and governor of one team. Um, mm. and I, I have a voice when these topics come up, but uh, yeah, and there's no one size fits all answer, but I, I think just for me, right? I'm not speaking for the league, but just for me, I think every team should have to play a local goalie in say six games. Yeah, the, the, the flip side of that is you can skate an extra import, right? So you, it's a it's it's a tricky balancing act, and and I've done it, and it hasn't worked out. So, you know, maybe I'm not the best person to be trying to sell that as a solution. But the honest answer is, I want I want talented young kids playing with pro imports every chance they get. I want I want a talented young kid playing the half wall on a on a power play. I want every young goalie with promise and a good attitude to get opportunities to play at the AHL level if they're good enough, if their teammates love them and enjoy their company um, and if they've got uh, a great attitude then why not can I, I'll, I'll follow that question up um, you know dealing with a lot of young goalies now uh, I see them stressing about things that they can't control um, and I guess I want to see if I can get you to clarify for them uh, for any goalies that, that end up watching this as well what do you look for in a goalie because I, I see them worrying about things that actually don't matter as much uh, so I'd like to, to hear what you actually look for as a coach. Character, first of all. In all my recruitment, I want, I want guys with the right character. Short answer there is I want guys who, who want to learn, contribute, don't think they're above the law, um, and will leave something here, some kind of in the imports leave a legacy. Um, with goalies, I just want someone who gets along with his teammates, puts the team's goals ahead of his own, uh, and gives an honest account of himself every minute he plays. Um, I, I can't assess goalie skill. Well, I mean, I can to a point, but certainly not at a very high level. Um, but, you know, I just think it's incumbent upon the people in roles like mine who make these decisions to give these guys opportunities for these to play. Look at the, I mean, Kimmer, Anthony Kimmer every year is one of the best goalies in the league, right? Year in and year out, he's right there. Um, he's Australian born. I believe he started on inline skates. So if he wasn't given the opportunities he was given when he was given them, would he be Anthony Kimlin right now? Probably not. So opportunity, and you, you got to give people, you got to open doors for people so they can see, so you can see and they can see what they're capable of. Awesome. Thanks. No That's a great question, Gabe. And, uh, and thanks for asking it, mate, because it, while I was searching around, the question I had was from a, a goalie uh, who I won't name, but a local goalie, and, and just asked exactly that: what is what does a local goalie need to do to play in the AHL? And, and Fridge, I think you nailed it perfectly there. You know, if I could expand on that to your, the second part of your question, Gabe, is is I, I really like what you brought up there as far as far as not worrying about what they can't control. Um, I think coaches, well, I know coaches at the AIHL level in particular, even state levels, um, national team levels, know the game well enough that they know what's out of that goalie's control. So the biggest thing I, or the only thing I want to add on to that is body language. Um, the goalies, the best goalies at their position, Kimlin, uh, Dane Davis of the last few years, um, they get competitive and they, they get pissed off competing, but their body language is, is good. Um, yeah. And I remember when I was, I was working as a scout overseas, I'd, I'd walk into some rinks. Um, sometimes when you're doing a few games in a day or a weekend, you don't get to a game at the start. And 
I really liked when I could walk into a rink and see a team might be down five nothing, and I see the goalie get scored on, and I think, oh, this must be the second guy who's come in because he's just shaking it off, like has a sip of water and goes back, and then you get the game sheet. So I oh, know he's been in the whole time. I love seeing that. I love seeing a goalie that is just present in shift by shift, not a goalie that maybe he's D-man coughed it up or was screened and he's throwing his hands in the air. Because to me, like you said, now he's letting all those things that he can't control influence his, his yep. play. And I've never seen that work out well. But no. I have seen a goalie get um, kind of intense and angry in a competitive way. Uh, Dane Davis, one of them. Uh, I'm sure Kimlin does, hasn't seen, haven't seen enough of him to say for sure. But where that can be a positive thing and really shows they care and the team can feed off that. But uh, body language to all players, but in particular goalies, is such a key for me, and, and in particular young goalies. Yeah. Two, two points just to round that out. Um, compete. I want goalies, I don't care if it's an import pro or a local kid, until that puck crosses a line, you're using your nose if that's all you've got left. You've got to compete. And you have to do that, not for me, but for your teammates. Your teammates need to understand that you are never giving up on yourself or, or on them. And then I've, I've got a friend who's a pro goalie. I won't name him because I'm not sure he wants to be named publicly, but I've had him talk to goalies, uh, young Aussie goalies before. And the, the, the best piece of advice I've ever heard him give was a, it's called the midnight rule. So you play a game and you're allowed to feel whatever you want to feel until 12 o'clock that night. And that's it. So if you had a great game and you feel like Grant Fuhrer or, or uh, uh, Holtby, or, you get to feel awesome about that until midnight. Tomorrow's a new day. You've got a, a job to do. You've got to be be you know, get better, practice, listen, and prepare for the next game. Um, I think that's fantastic advice, not just for goalies, but probably especially for goalies. Great points. Thanks, guys. Okay, guys. Well, Fridge, um, again, thank you, mate. There's some, there's some great, uh, great nuggets there. Definitely some uh, clips that we'll be putting up uh, on our website. And Like I said, this will be uh, saved. We're kind of building a library of these that people can, can go back and revisit. But, um, yeah, some really great answers there, mate. I appreciate you um, sharing your time. I know there were, there were people in this Zoom conversation, a lot of people on Facebook as well. Um, and, and I really hope they got a lot, lot out of it. As always, feel free to contact us, Fridge, directly, or we can get you in contact with Fridge. Um, because like you said, uh, good coaches are always willing to share and learn. And, and I know Fridge is one of those. So thanks again, mate. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. And uh, good luck with this. I think it's a fantastic initiative. Cheers. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>